Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we have been blessed in this worship service. We pray that you would guide our thoughts as we spend a few moments to reflect on your word. May you speak to us. We pray that the Holy Spirit that inspires would also be the spirit that instructs. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're focusing on the Ark of the Covenant and specifically the law, the Ten Commandments that are inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And I want to begin by looking at a couple passages of Scripture. And I didn't put it on the screen intentionally because I wanted you to read it in your own Bible. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Here James makes a statement about the nature of the law, the Ten Commandments. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. For whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who says, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor. Here, James commenting on the Ten Commandments indicates that if you break one, you break how many? You break them all. Now, the second text I have on the screen is one that seems to contradict what we've just read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. Paul, another New Testament writer, makes this statement, Ephesians 2, 14, for he himself is our peace who has both made, oh, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from two thus making peace. Here Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 states that the law has been abolished. That Jesus, when he died on the cross, the law is no longer binding on us. He abolished it in his flesh. Now, there are several topics and themes in Scripture that seem to have contradiction. And the first response we should have as Bible students is when we look at a contradiction or see a seemingly contradiction on a certain level is not to assume that the Bible is wrong but to assume that our understanding of Scripture needs further enlightenment. That's a good posture to have. So here we have two New Testament texts. One says you break one, you break them all. It implies that the Ten Commandments are still binding. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, Paul says that the law has been done away with. We're no longer under the law in another place. He says we are under grace. Now, today's message is more of a study than a sermon, and I have in your study guide uh, a few texts here that I would like to invite you to reflect with me on. The real solution to this dilemma is that there are two laws in Scripture. There are two laws, and I want to go through the first one with you. The first one is the Ten Commandments, and let's go in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. Moses was called by God to Mount Sinai, 
And there God gave him the Ten Commandments, and in Exodus chapter 31, 18, it tells the material that God chose to give the Ten Commandment law. He did not write it on paper or parchment or a scroll. Exodus 31, verse 18, and he made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai. He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. That must have been something to receive something from God that he had written himself. In other words, the Ten Commandments were so important, so critical, that God did not dictate the Ten Commandments to Moses and say, look, uh, I'm going to say a few things. I want you to write it down. God said, no, this is so central to who I am. I'm going to write it myself. And I'm not going to write it on parchment or a scroll. I'm going to write it in stone. It must have been blazoned with fire on that stone, right with his own finger. And he gave him the tablets. So the Ten Commandments were written by God and written in stone. Now, the very material that God chose to write the Ten Commandments tells us something about its nature. Is it passing? Is it changeable? No, it's unchangeable. When you say that something is written in stone, it indicates that it is of an unchangeable nature, eternal nature. God did something else as well. He instructed Moses to take the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai and to place them inside of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was like a chest. It represented the throne of God. So God took these stones, gave them to Moses, and he said, look, I want you to keep these in a special place in the sanctuary. They were not to be in the courtyard. They were not to be in the holy place. They were not just to be in the most holy place, but the most sacred entity in the sanctuary was the Ark of the Covenant, where the Shekinah glory of God was. And God said, look, I want, to take these, I want you to take these Ten Commandments that I've given you. I wrote with it with my own finger. I gave you the stones, and I want you to take these stones and place them inside of the Ark of the Covenant. The other thing that the Bible brings out about God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, Christ was to magnify the law and make it honorable, Isaiah 42, verse 21. Jesus did not come to do away with the Ten Commandments. He came to expound on it. He came to reveal the love of God in the Ten Commandments. So that is one law in the Bible. The second law is Moses' ceremonial law. This one was written by Moses. God's law was written by God. Moses' ceremonial law was written by Moses, and it was not written in stone. It was written in a book, according to Exodus chapter 24, verse 4 and 7. The other distinction is that it was deposited by the Levites by the side of the ark. Critical difference between the two. One was placed inside of the ark, while the other one was placed by the side of the ark. Now, which one held greater importance just by location? The Ten Commandments or Moses' law? The Ten Commandments. It was placed inside the chest, whereas Moses' law was placed at the side of the ark. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 26 indicates this, but there's some other things that Deuteronomy chapter 31 26 brings out. So turn with me there. And this is an important clause or nuance 
that Moses gives in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, that comes up later in the New Testament, specifically in Colossians chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26. Take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Now, it was known as the book of blessings and cursings, It says that if you follow God, these things will come upon you. If you don't follow him, these will be the end result. So it was to be there as a witness against the people. And it's interesting because in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, the Bible says that that we on the cross, the handwriting of ordinances that was against the people was to be blotted out. And that's very clearly portrayed in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 says that this was to be against the people. Now, anytime you mention the Sabbath, Colossians 2 is always brought out, and we don't want to go into that, that whole discussion that's for a separate a discussion, but here, just looking at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, and Colossians chapter 2, both use the phrase that this was to be against the people. This is not talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about the book of Moses, the law of Moses. So which one was of passing nature and was done away with at the cross? Remember, when Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil was rent from top to bottom, indicating that the sacrificial services that the Jews knew until that day had ended because the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, had died on the cross. He is the Passover Lamb. And I praise the Lord that today we don't have to slay a lamb. Amen? Jesus is the Passover Lamb. So there was a transition point, and we don't have to keep Passover anymore. We don't have to keep the Day of Atonement because Jesus has fulfilled or is fulfilling the antitypical Day of Atonement and has fulfilled the antitypical Passover. Now, this was a question that was posed to Billy Graham. Some religious people that I know tell me that the Ten Commandments are part of the law that I do not, that they, and that they do not apply to us today. They say that as Christians, we are free from the law. Is that right? Now, this is a common notion that is surmised in the Christian community that we no longer have to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. And this is Billy Graham's answer. No, it is not right. And I hope that you will not be misled by these false opinions. It is very important that Christians understand what the Bible means when it says that we are free from the law. It certainly does not mean that they are free from the obligations of the moral law of God and our liberty to sin. You see, the word law is used by the New Testament writers in two senses. Sometimes it refers to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, which is concerned about ritual matters and regulations regarding food, drink, and things of that kind. This ceremonial law was of a passing character and was done away with when Christ came. From this law, Christians are indeed free. But the New Testament does also speak of a moral law, which is of a permanent, unchanging character and is summarized in the Ten Commandments. This law sets forth God's demands on human life and man's duties to God and his neighbor. That it definitely applies to Christian is made clear in Romans 13, 8 through 10, Billy Graham. 
I agree with his assessment. There are two laws in the Bible: God's moral law, which is of an unchanging, eternal character, and then the ceremonial law, which was done away with when Jesus died on the cross. Crystal clear from Scripture. Now, talking about the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, the Bible indicates that it is like a mirror in James chapter one, verse twenty-three. A mirror serves a certain function. Have you ever gone through your day and you looked in the mirror? Now you went through your whole day and you thought that you looked just fine. You looked good, or so you thought. And then you look in the mirror and you're like, "Oh, I look like that. My husband let me look like this all day." And, and so, so you look in the mirror, and then there is a self-awareness. There's a moment of Reflection, it, a mirror tells the truth. All right, the mirror tells you something, but the mirror is not the solution. Are you following me? In the same way, the law tells you something. It's like a diagnostic, but it is not the solution. In the same way, as we look in the mirror of God's perfect righteousness, His perfect character, we see that we are sinners in need of a Savior. So the law points us to Jesus. The law is not like a bar of soap. That is, its purpose is not to clean us up, but to show us our great need. So the law serves a certain function, but we are not saved through the law. Now, there's a pendulum that tends to swing in Christianity. In reaction to legalism, some people have swung the pendulum to the other direction to say, "Look, we don't need the moral law anymore. We're not under the law. We're under what?" We're under grace. That's what people say. But Jesus puts the law in a de- different paradigm. We don't keep the law in order to be saved. We keep the law in response to Jesus. In John chapter fourteen, verse fifteen, Jesus said, "If you love me, keep my commandments." So God's faithful people keep the law because they love Him, not in order to be saved, but because they are saved by His amazing grace. Now, which of the Ten Commandments are you going to get rid of? If we say that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, we have the first four, which deal with our love for God. You shall have no other gods before me, no idols.、Uh, you will not take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the last six deal with our love for man. Honor your parents. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And thou shalt not covet. So, if you love God. You're going to keep the Sabbath, Amen. That's going to be your motivation. You're going to have no other gods before Him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill him. You're not going to steal from him, and you're certainly not going to take his wife. All right. So, so praise the Lord. So this is where the Bible says that love is the fulfilling of the law. The law is a transcript of God's character, and when you look at a comparison between God and His law, you will see that everything that Applies to God in terms of attributes and characteristics. Also applies to His law. For instance, God is spiritual; His law is spiritual. God is love; His law is love. God is truth; His law is truth. God is righteous; His law is righteous. God is holy; His law is holy. And I can go on and on. God is perfect; His law is perfect. God stands forever; His law stands forever. God is good; His law is good. God is just; His law is just. God is pure; His law is pure. God is unchangeable; His law is unchangeable. 
Now, we're focusing on the law inside of the Ten Commandments, or the, the Ten Commandments inside of the Ark, I should say. And when we look at the Ark of the Covenant, there was something interesting. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant was transported from place to place, this is in Numbers chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, when the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the Ark of the Testimony. No one in Israel, except the high priest, ever saw what the Ark of the Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, ever looked like. The only time they saw it, it was covered. So when they would go from place to place, this was a a portable sanctuary. They were able to pack it up. And when they packed up the Ark, the only time the children of Israel saw the Ark was when the priests were carrying it from place to place, and it was covered. It was shrouded. It was veiled. This, I believe, has a lot of lessons in it. It was is revealing the mystery of God, in a sense. And so, but but the covering of the ark was to be specifically a a color. In verse six, it says, "Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins, and spread over that a cloth entirely of what color? Of blue." and they shall insert its poles. So they were to cover the Ark of the Testament, and I have an artist's depiction of this. This is all that the Israelites saw. The priests carrying this article of furniture, and it was covered in a blue cloth. What is the significance of the color blue? We have a clue because in another place in Scripture, in the same book, in Numbers chapter 15, The Bible tells us they were to put the color blue in their clothing. Numbers 15, 38 and 39, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a blue thread in the tassels of its corners. So so the children of Israel, on the corners of their garment, they would have these little tassels. And woven into those tassels would be a blue thread. And God told them, and you shall have the tassels that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord your God and do them. So as the children of Israel, as they went through their day and they looked at the tassels and they would see the blue thread woven into their tassels, they were to remember the commandments of God. Blue represents the commandments of God. God's Ten Commandments. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was covered in blue, and we'll see exactly why later. But, but here, it says specifically, when you see the blue, you are to remember the Ten Commandments. Now, this is in your study guide. There was another time that the color blue emerges in Scripture, and this is on Mount Sinai, when Moses was invited by God and the 70 elders to the base of Mount Sinai. They were to wait there, and in Exodus chapter 24, verse 9 through 12, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw God, the God of Israel, and there under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for its clearness. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait here, and I will give you the tables of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So the elders of Israel, Nadab, Abihu, Moses, and Aaron, are there, and they see God, and he is standing 
on a sapphire stone. What color is sapphire? It's blue. And God says to Moses, as he's standing on this sapphire stone, he says, look, come up to me and I will give you tables of stone on which he wrote with his own finger the Ten Commandments. Now, you only pick this up in the richness of the Hebrew. The Bible was not written in English or in King James. I have news for you. All right? the, the Bible is written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and, and uh, um, Greek. But here in the Hebrew, the richness of it comes out because the literal Hebrew should be translated tables of the stone. There's a linguistic connection. Tables of the stone. Now, which stone appears just prior to this? The stone that God is standing on. The sapphire stone. And many theologians, looking at the evidence of Scripture, believe that the Ten Commandments were sapphire. They were blue. Which indicates why the children of Israel would put that blue in their tassels. So every time they looked at it, they remember the law of God because the Ten Commandments were blue. He had gotten the stone for the Ten Commandments from the very foundation that he was standing on, the sapphire. He says, I will give you the tables of the stone. And this is verified by the nuances of the Hebrew language. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 10, the Bible tells us that when Solomon's temple was built, Solomon's temple was to replace Moses' makeshift portable tabernacle, that there was nothing in the ark save the two tables which Moses put in therein at Horeb. Now, Horeb is another name for Sinai, when the Lord made the covenant with the children of Israel. In the Old Testament, it reveals that there were several other things that were placed inside the ark, uh, of course, the Ten Commandments was placed there, but there were two other things, Moses' rod, or Aaron's rod that budded, and then the pot of manna was also placed inside the ark. But the Bible indicates that in the transition from Moses' tabernacle to Solomon's tabernacle, that the only thing that was left in there was the Ten Commandments. Very interesting, and theologians believe that this indicates the eternal nature of the Ten Commandments. Aaron's rod, the pot of manna, was of a transitory nature, and it was no longer placed in the tabernacle during the time of Solomon, but it was the Ten Commandments that stayed afterwards. Now, Solomon's temple went on for a duration, and it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. According to history, Prior to the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, godly men took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it in a cave. And there's been quite a bit of fascination to find the Ark of the Covenant, and it hasn't been found to this day. And when you read the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy, Ellen White, she indicates that before Jesus comes a second time, the Ark of the Covenant will be found. And the Ten Commandments will emerge from the Ark of the Covenant and it will draw attention to the nature of the law of God, specifically the fourth commandment. If you want the references, there's a myriad of references on that. You can actually Google it and go to the White Estate, type in Ellen White, Ark of the Covenant Discovered Before the Second Coming, and, and they'll come up a whole bunch of references, but I can give you that as well. There's another place in Ezekiel where the sapphire stone emerges. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament, 
that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them, there was a, what does it say on the screen? A sapphire stone as the appearance and the likeness of a throne. So here in Ezekiel, he is not seeing the Ark of the Covenant, but he's seeing what the Ark of the Covenant is a replica of, the actual throne of God. He's seeing this in vision, and he sees cherubim. Cherubim are also in the Ark of the Covenant. He sees cherubim, and he sees a sapphire stone there, and it is in the appearance of a throne which indicates that the Ark of the Covenant was to be a replica of God's throne. It signified the very throne room of God, and notice where the the law of God was. It was the foundation of his throne. And here we see the sapphire stone again in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 26. Then above the firmament, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the a likeness of a throne, and the likeness, as it were, of a human form. This is, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. He's sitting on his sapphire throne. It is the very throne room of God. And what does the sapphire stone represent? It is the law of God. This is the very foundation of who God is. It is a transcript of his character. You have this in your study guide. In these verses, Ezekiel identifies the blue sapphire stone God is standing on as the throne of God. That means that the sapphire stone God is standing on in Exodus chapter 24 represents God's throne and the Ten Commandments that were taken directly from his throne. In other words, the moral law given at Mount Sinai, when God was looking for material to give the Ten Commandments. He said, what would be a material that would signify how foundational and how central the Ten Commandments really are? He said, you know what? I'm going to take it from the very foundation. I'm going to take it from my throne, and I'm going to give you the sapphire stone. And I want you to take this and place it inside of the ark, which will be a replica of my throne in heaven. And you can see why in the great controversy, Lucifer in heaven made an attack against the law of God. Because the law of God is the foundation of the government of God and is the transcript of his character. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says, But unto the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is a scepter of thy kingdom. We can come to the conclusion by implication in our study that if God's throne is eternal, then it means that God's law is also eternal as well. Now, Many times when we think of the law or the Ten Commandments, we think of it in a negative sense. But when we read Scripture, we actually see that the Ten Commandments are not in a sense of obligation, but the Ten Commandments are written actually in a sense of promise. It's not as though you shall not, but in reality, it's you will not. It's not an external imposing, but comes from an internal motivation. 
You will not. Why will you not? And the answer is really found in Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 13. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, what is the foundation of who God is? Love. That is the foundation of his government. And if you love God, you will not. Amen? If you love your neighbor, you will not. So this is not an external imposing. The reality is, this is an internal response to something that he creates within us. When you look at where the moral law of God is, we're looking at Moses' tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant had the law of God, and it is located right here. We noted that the sanctuary is a model of how God wants to bring us back, and Adam and Eve had this experience before sin. They had a most holy place experience. They were able to have a conversation with God face to face, uninhibited. Because of sin, we are out here, and God wants to bring us back. But where was the law written when Adam and Eve were in Eden? Was it written in stone? Was there a tablet that was there that every day they had to get up in the morning and look at and say, okay, I got to remember, you know, not to steal from you, Eve. All right? Got to remember, got to remember the faithful to you. You know, all, all of these, okay, we, we got to do this today. No, that's not the case. The law of God was written where? It was written on their hearts. In other words, they naturally did these things. Adam and Eve were naturally loving people. They were created, converted, sanctified. And God's plan is to bring us all the way back to Eden. Not only the place, but also to a place where we, just like Adam and Eve, will love God and our neighbor. He wants to write the law of God in our hearts. Now, I know that tomorrow, in this weekend in particular, we focus on the resurrection of Jesus. As a country, as a community of faith, Paul brings out an important lesson in regards to the resurrection. As you meditate on the resurrection, Paul says that even as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so you should walk in the newness of life. In other words, the resurrection of Christ, the reality of the resurrection, points out that we, even though we are dead in trespasses and sins, God can resurrect us. Amen? He can take us from death to life. And the message of the sanctuary reveals exactly where God wants to take us. He just doesn't want to take us from death to life support and leave us there. He wants to take us from death to fullness of life, all the way back to Eden. And this is my prayer for us, especially as we meditate and reflect on the resurrection. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, this is the covenant 
that I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them in their minds. That is a promise that God wants to do. He doesn't want to write it on tablets of stone. He wants to write it on our hearts. And the beauty of this is how many times God says, I. We don't write it ourselves. We let God write it for us. This is the work that he wants to do. And how many of you this weekend, as we focus on the resurrection, want to say, Lord, I want you to raise me to new life. Help me to be more like Jesus. May you write your law of love on my heart. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the moral law of God, the character of God. And even as you wrote your character on tablets of stone, you want to write the law of God in our hearts. Lord, help us to have a love for you. Create in us a love for you. Create in us a supernatural love for people. Bless us, we pray, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.